You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, and hopefully uh, while we're talking, we're <laughs> learning, and you are too. So. Well, yeah, hopefully something useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully. Well, well last time uh, we went through Psalm 3, which was pretty interesting. We mm-hmm. got kind of a little bit of a start into 55, and I think today we're going to wrap that and get into Jeremiah 9. Yeah, we're going to go through Psalm 55, and we're going to talk about different points in the end. And then I'm going to hit Jeremiah 9 kind of lightly, because uh, there are some connecting themes, but I, I think it's going to answer a lot of questions people have about David, because there's so much pushback about how can David be a man after God's own heart when he's done all these horrible things? And so this for me, really provided a concrete answer that I can point to in the scripture that's not just conjecture, but actually has some really firm ties that makes it so much easier to understand that concept. And so I want to share that because I, I was really excited to see it. And I, those are the things that I get really excited to talk about because it's like, oh, yeah, why has no one explained this to me? Why is no one talking about this? And why are people not, you know, when you, you get on Facebook and you get on Twitter and there's all these questions and nobody has an answer or they talk all around the issue and they, they provide you with a lot of conjecture and a lot of opinion and a lot of stuff that really doesn't make sense if you really break it down. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, occasionally... You get to find these nuggets whenever you you really dig in, which is, you know, why I like doing the podcast. It gives me a good excuse for all the time I spend doing this anyway. Yeah. (laughs) But so um, we're just going to jump into the text because last week, like you said, we did start uh, with some of the background and we did talk a little bit about the uh, fact that, you know, this possibility this was two psalms that were mashed together and how and why that may have happened. And so um, as we go through, I'm going to point out those different elements that, that point to that idea and, that, and why people came to that conclusion. And uh, we're going to talk about why maybe it's not the best conclusion. And uh, again, up front, I am somebody who leans towards the idea that David did write these. I don't have a problem with that. There are scholars who say that absolutely could not be the case. You know, in the end, it's a moot point. It really doesn't matter. The fact is the Psalms are included in our Bibles. The superscriptions do tell us, hey, these are applicable to David's situation. So uh, we can actually use them to gain more insight into the narrative. And they kind of act as a commentary on the events in Samuel. So they're very useful for that. But to begin with, we are going to look at a minute with the, um, with the uh, superscription. We're going to spend a minute on it is what I'm trying to say. And so in the ESV, it says to the choir master, a string with stringed instruments, a skill of David. Now, altar translates it a little different, not much, but there's a tiny bit of difference for the lead player on stringed instruments, a David skill. So uh, 
first of all, we got to know what a stringed instrument is. This is not the canore. If you go back to our previous episodes, we talk about the significance of a canore. We talk about why that is the specific instrument used by David and how it's used in prophecy. This term here is actually a blanket term for all stringed instruments. So a canore would be under that umbrella, but it's not limited to just the canore or the lyre, if you want to use a, a more familiar term for the instrument. Now, mm-hmm. um, the term maskil it, it is one of those really vague terms. It's not something that is easily translatable because we don't really know what it means. And um, some say that it refers to the song so the psalm itself is the maskil. Others say it's a title for the musician, that the musician is called a maskil. And so the, um, there's some debate on what it actually means. And all Art Scroll actually translated it as a wise man, that the maskil means that this is directed to somebody who has wisdom. And wisdom is such an interesting attribute because it's something that's attributed to people God has inspired. It's um, usually used to describe the prophets. It's used to describe, of course, Bezalel, one of my favorites, who uh, was the, the artist of the tabernacle. But even with an art scroll, they aren't consistent in adhering to that meaning. And sometimes they will actually use it as describing the song. So that's how kind of obscure and vague this term has become over the passage of years. Hmm. But yeah, and I think that we need to be aware. There are some words in the Bible that just, you know, by the erosion of time, their their definition has become become fuzzy. And, Hmm. And we need to be okay with that. And so now... The one thing everybody does agree on is that this is a psalm that teaches wisdom. So this is another reason why it might be a miskill. It teaches a lesson. It, it, it gives you some vital instructions for life. So that's the reason why, um, why it could apply to either the person, the lead musician, or it could apply to the psalm itself. Mm-hmm. But so first one says, give ear to my prayer, O God, hide not yourself from uh, pleas of mercy, for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. So the, the psalmist begins with four different ways, four different means of appealing to God and seeking God's attention. Give ear or hearken to as some um, translations have it. Do not hide. Uh, altar has do not ignore. Attend me or listen well. Pay attention is what the meaning of this is answer me. And again, that, that's pretty consistent throughout. Answer, I, I need to know you're paying attention because you're going to take the time to actually respond. Now that response is really important. And you're going to see why the idea that God would respond is significant within the Psalm and in Jeremiah 9, because the psalmist is anticipating that God will act and God is going to act because the psalmist has taken the time to ask. Now, this sounds really familiar to those of us who are, you know, students of the New Testament. You know, seeking you will find, ask it will be given, knock it will be open. All of these concepts that Jesus taught are already being presented within the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Yeah, and and I, 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 and I see this, and, and I, I, I read this, and I was listening to it earlier, and I was thinking about this, just the, 
how you're talking about how many times he says he's asking for to to be to for a response and i really uh you know growing up in the southern baptist church that's not really a thing how dare right. we <laughs> uh how dare we think we can tell god that he needs to respond to us actually reminds me of uh the Kathleen Madigan routine bothering Jesus. If you haven't seen that, it's pretty funny, but, but kind of a similar thing of like, don't bother God. He's busy doing other stuff, you know, and, and they're all more important than you. Uh, yeah. So that's, no. so to me, like hearing this, it's like, man, that's a lot of uh, emphasis. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of bothering God here. Kind well, of and with the expectation that it's going to happen. And, you know, I don't, uh, I don't think we expect that in the Old Testament because, you know, the Old Testament God's the God of wrath. He's the God of judgment. He's the one who's going to rain fire and brimstone down on people he doesn't like. Yeah, he's the God who's so distant that the—well, that well, because, I mean, how many times do we hear that growing up? In the Old Testament, the is, Israel was so uh, messed up and lost that they, they thought God was distant. You know, they just—they couldn't get near him. And if you actually read the Psalms and the Old Testament— you find out that's really not true. Well, read about the time it's before Sinai. Come on. I mean, talk about the wilderness journey. I mean, how many of us would give our right arm for God to lead us through life with a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke? I mean, how much easier would things be if we had a God we could see that clearly? I don't know. I mean, there there was there was still some some uh, messing things up in the Old Testament, even even during that time. Uh, true, very true. Uh, and you know, and and there had to be maybe some level of okay, it's just familiar, and familiarity breeds contempt. Um, you know, kind of uh, ideology in that. But at the same time, I I think in some ways those dramatic acts actually kind of made him. Cl- feel closer or seem closer than maybe sometimes we feel about even Jesus because, you know, I, that, that was 2000 years ago. Oh, yep. uh, and so, you know, I, I don't think it's being disrespectful or rude to sometimes say, Hey, sometimes it feels like he's not there. Sometimes it seems like it's just almost a fairy tale. And, you know, sometimes it's just being honest about the human perception and, and what's going on and, and not just, ignoring the fact that we have to grapple with these issues. And I think sometimes if those of us who, who have been in the faith for a while, and I'm not, I almost want to say a mature faith, but, you know, I don't have a mature faith. I, I, I have a faith that's been around a while. It doesn't necessarily mean it's grown. But if those of us who, who are, have been in the faith a while, maybe if we were just real about, you know, there's just times that I'm not feeling it. Sometimes it is just a matter of, this is what I believe, and I do have moments in my past I can point to that gives me reason to believe, but it really is a matter of faith sometimes, and it's not a matter of proving or providing evidence, and, you know, that can cause you to have those moments of doubt and to, to feel those distant um, places, and, and that's okay. We don't have to just walk away from faith because we have those feelings or we have those moments. We can just, we can acknowledge them. And mm-hmm. I think it's interesting how a lot of times when you go through those periods, and sometimes those periods can last months or years, but if you just keep at it, keep after God, you know, listen to me, pay attention to me, hearken to, to me, it, you know, a lot of times he will show up. 
And he'll show up in a way that's like, ah, yes, this is why. And, you know, I can't guarantee that, but I have seen that happen, at least for myself. So I, I think we need to be, to be real and, and not just act like, you know, you get saved and it's going to be like you're having coffee with Jesus every mo- morning. Some people, I think they have that experience. I, I don't think that's necessarily universal. So anyway, um, in verse three, David gives this explanation about why he needs God to intervene. Uh, you know, he describes his dilemma and, you know, there's the noise of his enemy, the suppression of the wicked, and people bear a grudge against him. And if this was written by David, and it was written at this time when Absalom had invaded Jerusalem, and Ahithophel is guiding Absalom, providing counsel for Absalom, then this grudge can actually refer to a number of things. So we can, we can have Absalom holding the grudge for the fact that David did not stand up and do something about the violence against Tamar, which makes perfect sense. Ahithophel, you know, Bathsheba's grandfather, he could hold a grudge for what David did to his granddaughter. And, you know, you don't want an angry grandfather. You don't want an angry grandmother. And I, I think especially when that grandfather is one of David's mighty men, not somebody you want to make an enemy of. It could also refer to Saul's family, who thinks that David took the throne when he shouldn't have. So there's a lot of people who don't like the fact that David is where he is. Now, this is not a universally accepted translation. Um, Alter translates it a little different. He says, when they bring mischief down on me and fling, sorry, and in fiery, in fury, fury, I can't read my own hand right, and fury harass me. So it still works. It just doesn't seem to be as pointed at David as I think the uh, ESV, which the ESV in the Psalm follows the Masoretic text. Alter mm-hmm. actually draws from the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls because there's points in here that he feels like are just gibberish. So I think he says unintelligible because, you know, that's more academic. So um, verse four, the psalmist gets very specific about the toll that this has taken. Uh, His heart's in anguish. Terrors of death have fallen upon him. Uh, Verse five, he says, fear and trembling have come upon him. Horror overwhelms him. And so we're moving, you know, through these mental and emotional processes of feeling all of this angst and misery. But we're also seeing where it's starting to impact him physically. This is not some abstract terror. I mean, this is something that is profoundly impacting his life. And he, he's letting this, this description of fear kind of build. He's kind of giving this rolling list that's supposed to sweep you up with him, that this is, this is how bad it is. Can't, can't you feel how, how terrible things are in my life right now? As a reader, he wants you to feel this. And as a singer, I imagine that these words would even have more impact than just reading them. Um, I actually want to uh, take a moment, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put what I observed, and I may be way off base. I okay. did not have any time, kind of chance to research the timeline about when it was possibly written. But for some reason, as I'm reading this, this to me reads more like uh, PTSD than something that was written during the time. Um, Because he says, I would fly away into the wilderness. 
Oh, um, uh, okay. Partly that's that's part of it because if if he was writing it while he's in the wilderness, well, he why why fly away? You're already there. Gotcha. And so to me, it, to me, it, it reads more like a, a a reflection on the past or someone trying to cope with with that time. And especially when you get down to, um, I know I'm going to skip ahead um, to verse you. twelve. Well, sorry, <laughs> um, but verses twelve and thirteen where he talks about um, if it was my if it were my enemies, it could be one thing. But this is a man who was my companion. Right. Um, who betrayed me. And so, um, you know, one of the things that, and, uh, that, uh, that Jordan Peterson mentions oftentimes, you know, we can deal with, a lot of times we can deal with uh, tragedy, but it's uh, malevolence that we mm. have a hard time accepting. And that's what causes these kind of PTSD reactions and betrayal is one of the heaviest ones. And in the ancient world, we kind of have this, there, the idea of war was just kind of accepted as a way of life. Right. And, and that was just, it wasn't necessarily seen as, as evil and malevolence. It was just tragedy. Right. And so if it was war with an enemy, that's tragedy. If it's against someone uh, who's a companion, then that is, they're evil enough to, to plot against their own uh, relatives or their own people. And so that's why, mm-hmm. to me, that's, I mean, I'm kind of working through part of my explanation here as, I, <laughs> as I'm going over it. But when I, I listened to it several times today while I was doing some chores and stuff, and to me, I, I just wanted to throw that out there. To me, it seems like something that was written after the fact, and it's probably like uh, panic attacks or something of that nature. Well, you know, there's some validity in that because we talked about last week with Psalm 3 and how kind of almost terse it is. You know, there's only one metaphor and, you know, that we don't have the Davidic flair that we expect from David's writing. And we talked about how that possibly could be because he's on the road. He's fleeing. There's not a lot of time to sit down and carefully craft a psalm where this one seems to have had more time and energy put into it. And you were talking about the timeline. The timeline, of course, with any psalm is up for debate. Um, Now, if it is David, they believe it was written, you know, somewhere around this time with Ahithophel. But how close was it on the road? I I do think that because we, if we want to compare and contrast with with Psalm 3, this would seem to be at least at a time where he was encamped somewhere uh, out of harm's way, uh, not, you know, scrambling to make a game plan like he was at the very beginning of the flight. So there could be a possibility that this is reflection, that this is something that as he moved forward, that, you know, maybe it's not right in during the flight. Maybe it's a little later. I I don't know. Uh, But I mean, that would make sense because one of the things you do with PTSD and I've had my, my bouts with that is you relive those moments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you feel everything you feel in that moment. Sometimes you feel more than you felt in that moment because in that moment, you didn't have time to feel it. You couldn't acknowledge it. And so when you it, revisit it. Exactly, it, exactly. And David being the military strategist, I could see, I could see maybe the, the Psalm 3 being uh, written on the road kind of thing. Mm-hmm. but. I could see David being, you know, him being such the military man, the strategist, that 
he's going to take care of business. Uh, and, you know, we've seen this in our own family. We take care <laughs> of business and then we have our breakdown after everyone is, you know, back home and and back in their place. <laughs> I've often told friends, I'm like, during a crisis, I'm the person you want there. We will get it done. We will get it taken care of. I will keep everybody moving. Now, three days after everybody's safe, you probably just want to leave me alone because right. that's when I'm going to be the big mess. And that, but yeah, that's how we handle it in our family. I mean, it's like, what's the next step? You just do it. You shut the emotions off. You get it done. You take care of business and you realize that the emotions can be dealt with later. And, and so you, you might be onto something. I, I'm kind of surprised I missed that uh, because it, it makes total sense. Because, but I think the overwhelming point is that the psalmist wants you to get all of these emotions are part of this situation. And mm -hmm. he's having to respond to them. And, you know, the idea that somebody in David's position could feel this way it would be kind of new. It's kind of almost a novel thing for, you know, this high and mighty king to actually feel vulnerable because that's what he's describing. I've been vulnerable. This is the way I feel because of what I've endured. And he, he says, you know, in verse six, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. And, and by the time he gets through this list of emotions and this list of reactions, we're ready to join him. Let's, let's go. We, mm -hmm. we, we need to get out of here. And this, this flight is in response to this terror, but the terror is so inescapable that it's going to take someone or something else to take him out of it. He cannot be who he is in that moment and be removed from the situation. So he needs supernatural divine intervention. And if you've ever had a PTSD-induced panic attack, that's how it feels. So when you're saying this, I'm like, yeah, this, this does make sense because I, it's like the fear, the terror is so pervasive that it just saturates every pore and every fiber of your being and it sinks into your bone and, and there's no place to hide from it. You can't get away from yeah. it, which makes it that much worse. So, yeah, because this is fear, trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. I mean, the terrors of death have fallen upon me. And it, to me, again, the, 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 there's just something about the wording that, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, like the terrors of death have fallen upon me. That doesn't necessarily mean that death has fallen upon him or that people are dying around him. But the, to me, I'm thinking, you know, the terrors of death that he's witnessed and seen and implicated mm -hmm. you know committed and you know it's so that's that's uh just like i said my my uh, untrained opinion there <laughs> no i mean it, it makes total sense and i i i can totally track with that and, and i do think you know since since you brought it up and i'm kind of shooting off the cuff here um one of the the dangers of being someone who can shut down the emotion and get the job done and make sure everything happens as it needs to in the middle of a crisis is we think oh well it's done i don't need to feel it mm -hmm. i don't need to work through it and it is so vital and important that if you've gone through those situations whether we're talking you know you're a vet who who's served overseas and you you've seen horrible things and 
you know, well, it's in the past. I don't need to deal with it. No, you need to deal with it. An abusive parent, an abusive spouse, which was my situation, um, you know, a horrible natural disaster. You can't just say it's over. It's done. I don't need to pull that out. The past is the past. It needs to stay there. That's unhealthy. Mm -hmm. We need to find ways to work it out. And sometimes, you know, believe it or not, the, the cheapest, most effective form of therapy available to everyone is writing. And so it makes sense that David would write this down or a a psalmist somewhere would write this down. This is good self-care. And I know self-care is like a a dirty word in the Christian circles now. If you don't take— Why would you care for yourself? It's dirty and sinful. Right. No, if— Sorry, (laughs) I've basically—I've listened to many podcasts because I listen to everyone just to make sure I'm informed, but there are literally people out there who will tell you, you shouldn't take care of yourself because yourself is dirty and sinful, and if you mm-hmm. start to indulge in self-care, then your sin's just going to multiply. And I'm like, whoa! <laughs> what do they think Jesus retreats to the mountainsides and into the wilderness to pray were? That was self-care. I mean, come on, let's, let's be real. Now, if your self-care is spending all the money on you, well, but Jesus was sinless. Jesus was sinless, so, you know, he, he could take care of himself, and that wasn't a sin. Well, okay. Because he's the, he was the only person worth caring for. You can't see me right now, but we aren't doing video. I, I'm sorry. I, I, and I, I'm to- I totally do not espouse that view, but I'm saying— <laughs> I know. I've, <laughs> I've, I've listened to preachers say things like that, and, and it just—I can't understand how you get there. Um, I mean, I can understand their reasoning, but I can't understand how you get there if you actually read the Bible and, and right. believe that God is good and loving. So anyway, um, go ahead, Emily, before well, I get, I, get I too was, ranty. Well, I, I've got to give a little bit of a rant now. Okay, one of the biggest problems, and I'm just, I'm just going to say it, one of the biggest, biggest problems in the Christian community is we have taught abstinence, not responsibility. And we, we've shy away from things that we are actually supposed to be dealing with in a responsible manner. We aren't teaching people to go, hey, there's somebody who's hurting, who needs help, and so let's go help them. We go, oh, no, that's a drug addict. They do drugs. They're scary. Let's get out. Uh, Sex, alcohol, we, we can go down all of these lists. And in choosing to teach and promote abstinence as a way to keep ourselves pure, quote unquote, and clean, um, we aren't even allowing ourselves to function in the real world as it is. So we have got to stop acting like we have to just shun anything that has the slightest whiff of evil. Because one of Satan's best schemes to make us just non-functional and ineffective in this world is to disarm us through the things that God has given to be tools, to be weapons in the spiritual world, the spiritual war. And so, you know. Taking some time to take care of yourself, watching what you eat, doing some exercise. Uh, you know, I'm just talking about the stuff I don't actually do, but people should. Uh, but, you know, some rest, maybe taking a nap so that you can function better and be more present for those that you love because you're scared. Uh, you know, those are things you should do, not shun because you're scared that you might accidentally take it too far. Uh, you know, be aware. Don't don't make stupid decisions and don't indulge too much. That's that's a problem because now you're in extremes. And the man who fears the Lord avoids all extremes. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, 
that's just one of my pet peeves. I, I, I get so tired of us acting like we have to be afraid of everything that's out there because it might contaminate us somehow. It might lead us into sin. My God's bigger than that. I don't know what God these other people are serving. My God's bigger than that. And so um, I got to watch out for myself. But if I keep drawing closer to him, he watches out for me. So, you know, he's got my back. But anyhow, another can of worms you shouldn't have opened on air. Um, <laughs> I think I did, but I'm going to blame you. I think so, Psalm first, did. <laughs> there we go. So verse we're seven, blame the Bible yeah, we're on gonna this blame one. God. <laughs> so verse seven, yes, I would wander far. I would lo- far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. So here's the one of the first elements that connects us to David, because uh, as implicitly, uh, you know, David's flight is from Absalom. He is in the wilderness. He's not in the city anymore. Uh, he had to find refuge in the wilderness. Why? Because Jerusalem, the city proper, has been overrun with supporters of Absalom. And verse 8, he says, I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Now, the, the sages picked up on this and they said, hey, this is a clear indication that if your society is corrupt, then you should remove yourself from that society. If you can't find a better society or a less corrupt society, you should just go to the wilderness and seek God. And now we're kind of back to what we were talking about a minute ago. There are times that, you know, I think, I think everybody should go out to the wilderness. I, I think you should spend some time, you know, just away and alone with quiet. But I think Jesus, again, presents us the picture. What happens after you spend that time? You return. You go back to the community. You, you, you rejoin society with this renewed sense and purpose and, and this understanding of, of God and his love and his care for you. Because you've taken time to, to remind yourself that God really is there. And, you know, and I'm not saying you have to have some kind of um, transfiguration type moment, you know, where, where there's, you know, Elijah and Moses show up and you want to build tents. But sometimes just, you know, looking at God's creation, sometimes just being in this world that he has designed to function the way it does. and Seeing that wonder and going, you know, if he can put this much thought and detail into a blade of grass, into uh, the mosses and the, the fungus that grow and, and but still be in charge of the universe, there, there's something comforting and there's something soothing about having that reality, not just something that you know in the back of your head, but something that you actually remember, something you engage with. So anyway. Oh, that's my my self-care. Let's get outside. Let, let's see what God has done in nature, which I know that makes me a tree-hugging hippie, according to some. But, you know, we're stewards of the world, and we won't get into all of that. But other than God created this for us to enjoy, enjoy it. Verse 9, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. So again, we're reminded there's something wrong with the city. If this is David, this is Jerusalem. This is a different word than what we found in 2 Samuel 15.31, but it still carries that kind of connotation and meaning when David prays, Oh Lord, please turn the council of Hithopel to foolishness. So mm-hmm. there, there, there's, a, there's a similar theme. And we don't always have to have the same words 
in order to make the connection. If we've got the same concepts, the same ideas, and, you know, Hebrew is like English, we have synonyms. And so being able to look at those synonyms and say, oh, yes, this is how they go together, and they are talking about the same kind of ideas, actually opens up uh, the Bible for more and new levels of exploration. Now, Ibn Ezra actually sees this as an appeal that God would do what he did at Babel, and a reenactment of, of Babel. I don't know how far we should take that. Um, the text itself doesn't seem to put too much emphasis. It doesn't mention Babel at all explicitly. Uh, the dividing tongues, of course, you know, that is a, that is a common theme. But I think if we look at the purpose of Babel and, and the, the things that were accomplished there, and we go through the rest of the psalm and we see what the psalm is doing, I, I think there are some, some implied connections, some light connections, if you will. And, you know, we got to remember, David is king of Israel, and as such, he's the representative of God. And so whenever God claims Israel as himself and David is now functioning on his behalf, this request for Babel to be reenacted is kind of a way of saying, or would be if this is correct, God, show that you're still king over Israel and do it by showing that I'm still the one you pick. And so this would have to be a specific act that could only be performed by God. It could not be an act that David does himself. It, it requires that divine supernatural intervention. And I think mm -hmm. that's a very interesting point. So the psalmist goes on to describe the evil that the men are doing and the impact it's having on the city. Day and night, they go around on its walls and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from the marketplace. And so we've gone from this lament of an individual for an individual to a lament over the city. Now, this is where we begin to see that question. Is this one or two psalms? Did somebody take two psalms and put them together? Because why do we have the sudden shift? And we kind of brought that up last week that, you know, why, why wouldn't we think about the fact that this is one person who's causing problems in the entire city, that the deeds of a single individual are impacting all the people around them? Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, is topic jumping like this is very common in, uh, in grieving. It, it's not something that psychologists or even interrogators are unfamiliar with. And so we, we, we should expect it whenever there's a grief process going on. As a matter of fact, one of the signs that they look for, uh, like in an interrogation, is consistency in grief, that the, that the grief um, process be very linear, that it be very homogenous almost. That's not a tip-off that the grief is real. It's actually a tip-off that the grief is being faked. Because, you know, if you've ever been to a funeral in our family, you're going to find there's going to be moments where people tear up and people, you know, have the, this, this sorrow that's manifest and demonstrated. But overwhelmingly, you're going to find laughing. 
you're going to find silliness. You're going to find, you know, crazy stories about what someone did. You're going to find inappropriate jokes because that's how we deal with trauma in our family. Um, It's there is that topic jumping there. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. the, the jumping in the emotions there. There's this almost randomness to it, because when you're in grief, you don't think in a straight line. You, you, that's when you're stressed, you don't think in a straight line. You tend to jump from one thing to the other. So, so actually, this is evidence of authentic grief rather than manufactured grief. So in verse 12, we um, get back to a personal circumstance. Also, this connects us back to Ahithophel. These are the ones I believe you referenced um, earlier. And it says, for it was not an enemy who taunts me. Yeah. So then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. And so we're back to that betrayal. This is this is where we're seeing what the root issue is. The the terror and the pain, yes, it's caused havoc in the city, but the personal hurt is because it was a personal relationship that that was injured and was used against him. Matter of fact, the, the Hebrew here for familiar friend is yada. And yada is the Hebrew term that we most often find used in reference to sex. And Adam knew his wife to know. It's that experiential knowledge. This is somebody he has experienced meaningful events with. It's not, it's not a sexual relationship. That's not what it's applying here because that, that's not always what it means. But this is a, somebody who, whose presence in their life was, you know, it was intimate. They, they went through these moments where they knew each other as few other people did. So verse 14 kind of goes on to describe this. We used to take sweet counsel together. And remember, Ahithophel was David's counselor. Now he's David's, uh, Absalom's counselor. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. So this, again, you know, that connection back to Ahithophel being a counselor for both uh, David and, um, and Absalom. And the only hiccup in this verse is they walked in the house of God. Now, if this is referring to the temple proper, we know that couldn't possibly be referring to David because David hasn't built the temple yet. However, there are other houses of God. Bethel Bethel was a house of God. So um, Mount Olives was where God was worshipped before the temple was uh, built. So we, we, we have these moments or these other places where it could be taking place. It doesn't have to be the temple, but that is one objection that people do bring up. And um, I think up to this point, as we've kind of been walking through it, it's very coherent, and I think it's very plausible that David could have written this psalm. So, yes, Jerusalem's the city. Uh, he needs to flee from it. He, it's no longer safe, but the, the reason why it's not safe is because the individual. So it, it doesn't have to divide the psalm into two separate parts, going back from the plural to the singular on who's oppressing or who's hurting him. And I was thinking about this, and I think a really good um, modern context that people might be able to understand and relate to 
is if you've ever survived a church split. Because typically what happens, and you know, I can say this having survived a few, there's one or two people stirring up trouble. There's one or two people who are making sure everyone else stays hurt, they stay mad, they can't forgive, they won't turn loose, they want to bring up and dredge up all the dirt, you know, against whoever they're mad at. And in that moment, man, friends turn against friends, people that you counted on as spiritual mentors, people that were brothers and sisters that you had shared meaningful worship experiences with, that you had grown with, that you had healed with, that you, I, people that you had invested in their lives and they had invested in yours, they will turn on each other in a church split. And, you know, that's one of the most painful experiences I think a lot of Christians go through in, in this time. Because there, there is such a sense of betrayal that not only do you lose friendships, a lot of people lose their entire church community. They lose their faith in God. They become embittered. And I think that maybe this would be, good, would be a good psalm to return to in those situations where we can appeal to God, hey, I need your help. Why? Because someone has betrayed me. And the really interesting thing is God knows what betrayal feels like, too. He, he's not immune to this. I mean, obviously, we can go to Judas with Jesus. But how many times did Jerusalem betray God? And how many times did people that, that God called out betray him by acting contrary to his, um, his desires? So I say all that because, yes, commentators have a problem with this. Biblical scholars see issues. I don't see the issue. I, I, I don't think it has to be, uh, oh, this is got to be two psalms put together because the verbs don't line up. And we talked about why the verbs not lining up isn't an issue, particularly in a psalm. Yeah, yeah. I think last was the wallflowers we referenced last week. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob Dylan <laughs> changes verb tenses all the time. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he would not pass an English class. Great songs, uh, poor English. Uh, and and that's, you know, that's so normal. And I, I don't understand why we think that the the biblical writers would be any different than any other songwriters. So now to me, this is where it gets really interesting is in verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. I heard okay. it gasp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was getting ready to take a, take a shot here. The, this is okay. I, the only other place I can think of where there's this go into Sheol alive uh, phrasing is the guys who offered what's that, guys, Cora. guys who offered strange fire. Mm -hmm. Cora. Yeah. And number 16. Know, what's that? Number 16. Number 16. Yeah. I, I, I didn't have a chance to look it up, but yeah, I, I was thinking about that. Cause man, that's a, that's a really interesting verse. Like the, the, the ground opened up and swallowed them. And then says they went into Sheol alive. And yeah. that's just it's creepy phrasing. Well, and, and <laughs> a little bit of background. So for people who aren't familiar, because this is one of those stories that's too weird for a lot of preachers to touch. And I know people who've been in church for years have never heard the story. And basically what it boiled down to is you had this group of priests who said, hey, 
why are Aaron's sons getting better treatment than us? We're just as important as they are. And Moses, you're just a horrible dictator. I'm paraphrasing, of course, if y'all guys don't realize this. Uh, Moses, why are you being, you know, playing favorites here? Uh, you can't really be the person that gets to make these rules. And so they organize a bit of a coup. And of course, this doesn't make God happy because we know Moses is God's appointed leader. He is the one that's been chosen. Now, Moses has a problem in this moment because if he stands up and says, hey, you guys are out of line and I'm just going to kill you all for daring to organize some kind of little political coup against me, now he looks like a despot. And Mm. he's just going to incite more rebellion because nobody, especially somebody who's been oppressed, who's experienced some freedom like these people had coming out of Egypt, they will fight tooth and nail not to be oppressed or even bear the, the resemblance of oppression again. So he can't really do that. However, if he leaves it unaddressed and he does nothing, then this might embolden even more people to start to challenge his position as God's leader. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of uh, an impossible situation on a human level for Moses to address. However, God provides the solution. And I'm just going to read, this is uh, number 16, 28 through 30. And Moses says, hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been done in my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go go alive down to Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. So this is, like you said, the only place where we have this word and the sign, specifically the sign that God is king, God is in control, and God approves of Moses as a leader is this going down to Sheol alive, that God takes these men and says, this is where you belong. Why? Because they've despised the Lord. And so we can automatically see the, the similarities. Uh, Absalom's rebelled against David. There's people questioning whether or not David is God's appointed or anointed leader, just like the sons of Korah were questioning whether Moses was the appropriate leader. Absalom's choosing, uh, uh, sorry, as um, challenging David's right of rule, just like Korah's uh, and his sons were. And mm-hmm. David needed to be vindicated. But if he makes any move, he's in the same position that. Um, that Moses. Moses was, yes. And so if we understand that the, the psalmist, whether it's David or not, is pull, pulling from number 16 with this verse, we understand that the psalmist is asking that God deal with his enemies in such a way that there is no doubt that people would know that God is the one who brought about revenge. God's the one who vindicates this person as being a rightful leader or rightfully fil- fulfilling their place and position whatever it is. And it's also a very fitting fate that somebody who, who has despised the Lord or somebody who, who reviles the Lord and has made this place for hatred and rebellion in their hearts and made the, their home a place where rebellion lives, that now God would say, this is, you're going to live in the home that rebellion created and which mm-hmm. is Sheol. And so I, I, it's it's an appropriate thing because this is what the person has chosen. This is what they've decided they want in their life. And God says, well, then this is where your life will be. 
and I, I think that's really an interesting switch that we don't often think of. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate on does God really send someone to hell? Does God, you know, design people for hell? And I don't think he does. Well, I, I, wasn't it Lewis who said, you know, uh, ultimately God gives us what it is we ask for, whether it's eternity with him or eternity without him. There's, yeah. Um, I, think, I, I, I probably butchered the quote, but it's something to that effect. I, I think it, that sounds like something Lewis would say, but I mean, the, I think the sentiment's correct. Whoever said it, I th- definitely think the sentiment's correct. And so, um, you know, these people have decided they didn't want God's leadership. And now they're saying they don't want it in the form of a person, whether it be Moses or David or the psalmist, whoever they may be. But when God appoints leadership, you respect his leadership because he's decided this is the person you need for this moment. And we can talk about how far that extends into the political realm at some other time. I don't really care right now. I'm done with politics. <laughs> verse, verse 16, but I call to the Lord and he will save me evening and morning at noon. I utter my complaint and moan. He's heard and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul and safety, safety from the battle I wage for many are arrayed against me. So this section I mean, it's a complete reversal from the, the, the opening where we have this list of ways that he's trying to get God to pay attention. Now he's affirming God will pay attention. And it's almost boastful. God will hear me. God will respond to me. God will save me. But the, the psalmist is not saying this as a way to say, hey, look how important I am that God's going to pay attention to me. He actually explains his confidence in verse 19. When he says, God give, will give ear to the hum, God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change, because they do not change and do not fear God. So the ESV follows the Masoretic. Um, this is uh, following the Hebrew as closely as possible. It is very difficult. Uh, Hebrew, some of the syntax and stuff is, is challenging. Um, but the psalmist is very clear. God will hear because the enemies are arrogant. They're boastful. They're prideful. They need to be humbled. This is the only thing that's going to stop them. And why do they need to be humbled? Because they've forgotten God is on his throne. God has always been on his throne. And if the people refuse to change and to accept that fact, then their fate is death. And I think it's very interesting that the the wording there that, you know, the the consequences aren't because they had this thought. The consequences aren't even because they rebelled. The consequences is because they refused to change. They continued in the rebellion, where if they had repented, everything would have been fine. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me that JPS is completely different than, almost mm-hmm. completely different than the ESV here. What does the JPS uh, said? Because I didn't look that one up. I've got altars. I guess you, you went with altar. Uh-huh. Um, God reigns from the first, uh, from the first who will have no successor, hears and humbles those who have no fear of God. Okay, yeah, that is really different. It's a very, <laughs> very different translation. They put the Selah after the fear of God line. Um, uh, okay, so. so Alter has, get this, Ishmael and Jalen and the dweller in the east who will never change do not fear God. So 
I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> right? Okay, so this just shows you how hard this verse is to translate, that we have such three completely different translations. Uh, so Ishmael, we know, is, of course, the son of Abraham. Jalen is a descendant of Esau. And then we have this mysterious dweller in the east. Um, Alter says this is a list of enemies who's arrayed against the psalmist. Uh, he recognizes that it's all very symbolic. Uh, hold on. I don't know, but uh, there it goes. Let's see here. Okay, but, yeah, I'm looking. At, yeah, I'm looking at other translations to see how they do it because it's it's very interesting. Yeah, it, it, and when you, I looked at the Hebrew, I went, uh huh, sure. Yeah, well, in in <laughs> in the NIV, it's different too. God who is enthroned from old, from old, who does not change, He will hear them and humble them because they have no fear of God. I mean, that's. <laughs> That's quite different than the ESV, so mm -hmm. I don't know. It seems like the ESV went off the rails, but I'm not sure. It, it's um, it's actually they follow they do follow the Masoretic and they follow it pretty closely. Um, it, you know, it it is just one of those texts. We've got to remember how old this is. We've got to remember that it didn't come to us etched in stone. It came to us on scrolls that had been passed through hands that had gone through multiple, uh, you know people's uh, lives and and you know even reading my own handwriting y'all see how much i struggle with it try reading somebody else's handwriting whenever they're using an alphabet that an alphabet that may have changed ah here's a good example try getting a millennial to read cursive uh no i, mean, I know <laughs> oh man i know okay guys i don't hate millennials i think most of them are pretty cool actually but you know just blame the school system on that one but, yeah whoops um, but I, but you not know, the teachers. The teachers are doing the best they can. But I, that's a totally different topic. <laughs> yeah, no, we aren't going to go there. So yeah, but the the problem is, I mean, alphabets and the way we write things do change over time, and especially whenever we still haven't got. I mean, the the internet and the the printing press before it really have kind of cemented the way we write things, the the formation of the words, like literally how a, a letter is shaped before that there was a mm -hmm. lot more fluidity in it because you know you everybody kind of did their own little thing i mean yes there was a general cohesiveness to it but you know think of everybody writing and their own handwriting i mean, it, it it gets insane and so um you know i don't think this is something that that we have to freak out about and go, oh my gosh, there's mistakes and errors in the Bible. It can't be God's word. No, the fact that we have so much that is preserved, I think that little examples like this show us how great the clarity of the rest of the Bible really is and how amazing that is that we can have that much clarity in so much, in so many more passages. And so I think it's a good reminder that people were very much a part of the process and God chose to include us. And that's, that's a fantastic thing. And so uh, I don't think we're ever going to have a great explanation about exactly what this um, verse should say. Although we do know that that idea of, because they did not change, 
that one's actually one of the few things that is pretty clear in that um, in that verse. And often this word for change actually refers specifically to changing of clothes, which I kind of see as another little nod back to Samuel because if the book of Samuel has taught us nothing, clothing is significant. Uh, clothing, like we've said before, could almost be its own character in the book of Samuel because it does denote the the person's spiritual and physical and mental well-being and condition of the time. And so the thing about using this word where clothing that can be changed, taken on and off, shows that it's within the power and the ability of um, of the person they're talking about to change. So I, I, I think it's very important that we, we see these points where we all are personally responsible, have personal responsibility within the scripture to decide who are we going to, to serve? Who are mm-hmm. we going to, to follow? And we get to, we get to decide. And so, uh, you know, the, the thing is, the psalmist is making it very clear he is going to be saved. He is going to be taken care of, not because he's such a great person, not because he's this amazing guy. He is being taken care of because of who God is. And in opposing him, his enemies are actually opposing God. So verse 20, it says, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends and he violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words softer, were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So the psalmist, you know, he, he is. He's going, you know, back and forth, that grieving process we, we talked about earlier. I, you know, at one minute, he's grieving over the evils that this guy who was his friend and who betrayed him and this confidence in God. This isn't being double-minded. This isn't being, you know, unstable, any more unstable than anybody who's in the middle of deep grief is. This is fighting through that process. And a lot of times when you're going through that process, you bring up, hey, this is where I'm hurt. This is the pain it's caused me. We get very um, real and honest about the depths of that wound. And then we go back and we speak truth over ourselves. We, we, We say the things that we know are true no matter how we feel. And the truth is God is faithful. God protects, God defends those that that love him and those who serve him. And, you know, I think sometimes we forget that one of the big, big acts of faith is grappling with the reality of our situation and not just denying that things hurt us. And, you know, this grieving process it is one of the things we need to be engaged in, actively engaged in, because it's the process God put in place to help us heal. And, it, and we begin that by being very honest about how we've been wounded, not covering up what, those wounds and not trying to hide or conceal them from ourselves, and, and especially not to God. So if we want to be real blunt, we don't lie to God about what's happening to us. And, you know, and one of the ways we do that is to be very honest about how we came to be in that condition. And I've heard people say, oh, well, you know, you've got to take responsibility for your own situation. Don't blame others. Don't bring up what they did to you. That's 
that's saying they made you feel that way. They caused you to feel that that's trying to, to um, get out of your responsibility for your own emotion. No, that's telling the truth. And this, this is not blame shifting. When somebody legitimately hurts you, when somebody legitimately does wrong to you, then it's okay to, to address that. It's okay to say it hurts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't say, well, you know, Jesus should have just, you know, taken responsibility for the fact that, that Judas betrayed him. I mean, we know that's ridiculous. We put the blame on Judas because that's what Judas did. And so, you know, that's a model of Jesus forgave him. Jesus, you know, I, I, we aren't going to talk about salvation, forgiving, and all that. You know, Jesus de- dealt with his emotions. Let's, let's talk about that side. Jesus never hid the fact that this was done to him. And, and one of the things I think is really interesting, when, um, when we talk to people, a lot of times they will spend hours going over slight inconveniences, little bitty hurts, you know, minor offenses, and they will talk about those all day long. But trying to get them to open up about the big wounds, the wounds that really matter, a lot of times we don't do that. We, we won't go there. We won't go to those places where we're vulnerable, vulnerable and, and be honest about the depth of our hurt. And usually those hurts, and we go right back to what we were talking about earlier, the hurts that are the most painful are those personal betrayals. And we don't tell those stories. We don't talk about those things because they are too big. And, and they, they cost too much to even relive sometimes. And we need to be doing what the psalmist is modeling for us in saying, I, I've got to take this to God. I, I've got to lay it all out there. And I have to be honest. A friend and a brother or sister, they wounded me. Mm-hmm. And if we can do that, I think we can, we can start to heal. But a lot of people want healing to be, man, they want it to be instantaneous. They want it to be supernatural. Mm-hmm. Healings work. I, I don't know any physical condition where we get injured and we go, I want that to be better, and boom, it's better. Uh, you know, I, I do believe that there are miracles of healing. I think those happen. But most of the time, it, it's a process, and it takes days. It takes weeks, and it, it, it's painful. It's messy. Mm-hmm. And so healing from an emotional or a spiritual wound is also messy. And it can take years of just going through and pulling out a little bit more of the mess, cleaning it up, taking care, you know, just you, you're faithful to do the right thing. It is, I think that's what we're called to do and to address these uh, wounds in, in ways that respect the fact that we have been wounded and to do that self-care that we were talking about earlier, not as a way of being selfish, but simply because a guy with a broke leg can't run the race. Right. You know, it, it really is that simple. And if, if we can give people grace to sit on the couch or use crutches if their leg's broken, we need to have grace to let people sit on the couch when their heart's been broken and when their mm-hmm. spirit's been wounded. So um, anyway, we obviously aren't getting through all of this psalm this week, and we haven't even begun to sure. touch on Jeremiah 9. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that'll be for next week. It'll be good. But um, no, I think this was a very fruitful discussion. At least I hope so. And uh, if it was for you, anyone out listening, get, let us know. Raven Creek SC on the social media is where you can reach us. And we'll tell you how to start your own podcast. No. <laughs> Raven Creek, RavenCreekSC.com is the website. Um, yeah. And uh, be sure to, to leave us a comment, share us with a friend, give us a review. Um, check out uh, other shows uh, hosted by uh, the Raven Creek Social Club. Um, we are a somehow haphazardly um, <laughs> growing <laughs> podcast network, um, and we are uh, glad to have some people on board with us. Uh, and we got some surprises go coming up with that. <laughs> and we have some, yeah, we have some surprises coming up. We'll announce those as soon as we can, and we look forward to hearing from you. And hopefully, we'll have you back next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.